Hello, welcome back to On The Brain Podcast, where we showcase exciting research at the University of Calgary. Today, we talk about stroke. Have you ever thought about how stroke can affect the way you speak? How about the way you move? Dive into these topics and more in this episode. Welcome to the On The Brain Podcast. My name is Rob. I'm going to be your host today. And this episode is uh, kind of dedicated to stroke. And today, I'm fortunate enough to have Trevor Lowe on uh, on the show. He's going to talk a little bit about himself and uh, the kind of research that he's doing here at the UFC. Awesome. Thanks, Rob. Uh, yeah, really happy to be here to talk about stroke and some of the work that we do in Dr. Sean Dupel's lab. Uh, so I'm a uh, finishing my fourth year of my PhD studies with Sean Duplo and study stroke rehab. Um, in the clinical setting, and I'm also in the MD program uh, combined, so the Leaders in Medicine program here at the University of Calgary. Well, Trevor, why don't you tell us and the, the audience a little bit about what uh, you do for your research, uh, in particular, you know, what a, what a stroke is and kind of what you look at uh, through your research. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so a stroke, in the very basic sense, is a disruption of blood flow to the brain. And so there's two types of stroke that we often think about, and the most common one that we see is called ischemic stroke. And that's basically a blockage in the brain and a blood vessel in the brain that supplies oxygen to the tissue. Um, and the other one is hemorrhagic stroke, where basically you have a rupture of a blood vessel in the brain, and that also disrupts blood flow. It prevents healthy, uh, nutrient-rich blood from getting to areas that it needs to go, and that also causes um, stroke-like symptoms. And with stroke, basically, the area of the brain that the stroke is happening in will dictate what kind of deficits you'll see um, after the stroke. So I study language, so a stroke in the, uh, in the language regions of the brain will result in slowed speech, um, arrest of speech. It can also um, prevent you from comprehending speech very well. And um, some other deficits you commonly see are motor deficits. So if you have a stroke in the motor region of the brain, You'll have issues walking or moving your arms, um, other things like that. Yeah, and you know we'll we'll obviously talk a little bit about uh, you know uh, stroke and how it affects language centers of the brain, and then kind of later on in this episode we're going to touch a little bit more on what Trevor just mentioned, kind of the motor side of things and and how uh, how those types of strokes can actually affect the brain the way that we function in our daily lives. So Trevor, you talked a little bit about different types of language deficits in a way. Could you maybe elaborate a little bit more on that for uh, for us? Yeah, for sure. So as I mentioned, after a stroke, um, the region of the brain that's damaged is where you're going to see the deficits from. Because the region of the brain that's damaged is controls a very specific behavior or function in the brain. And for the vast majority of people, like 97% of the population, language is centered in the left hemisphere of the brain. And that's where we see regions like Broca's area, um, so discovered by Paul Broca in the 1800s, right. and he found that patients with damage to that part of the brain um, had issues word finding and pr- pr- uh, producing fluent speech, and they okay. had they couldn't hold a very long sentence; it was very short, agrammatic, mm-hmm. um, and halting speech. So they have really hard times holding conversations and getting what they want to say across. Right. Yeah. Um, the other type of aphasia that we see is uh, that's really common is called Wernicke's aphasia, and as you guessed, it's probably in Wernicke's area. It's more temporal and parietal um, towards the back of the brain, and that region is responsible for um, speech reception and language reception. So it's really important for if you're having a conversation with someone, understanding what they're saying to you, or if you're reading a book, understanding what the words mean. Uh, it's more 
we're about the semantics of speech and understanding what right what's, what's coming in and so my understanding of kind of stroke in the brain is that you know for a long time we thought that kind of the outer surface of the brain what we call cortex essentially is ultimately very important for these kind of functions such as language mm -hmm. um but there's also, you know, other components of the brain that lie underneath that kind of outer layer of the brain, kind of subcortical is what we tend to use as the term. Uh, it's to my understanding that some of your research is actually looking at kind of these subcortical structures and how that kind of affects language after a stroke. Could you, you know, talk a little bit about that as well? Yeah, definitely. Um, so, yeah, basically ever since Paul Broca and Carl Wernicke found their regions, they thought that just the outer surface of the brain where the lesion was because they didn't have really fancy anatomy uh, back then the only way you could study anatomy is post-mortem um, and right. so they could see that the patient that they had had like a say a pole stuck through their Broca's area and they have problems producing speech and so they say that region of the brain um, is responsible for speech in that region alone only on the surface um, but actually when we looked at um, a study uh, published by Dronkers et al in the UK they actually did an MRI scan of these historic patients and they found that, yes, they had damage to these cortical regions, but they actually had really extensive damage to the subcortical and white matter structures underlying these regions. Right. And more recent data is showing that um, these damage to these regions are actually most predictive of poor outcomes after stroke. So um, these information highways, the white matter tracks that connect language regions to the rest of the brain and within the language network, uh, that's probably the most significant predictor of recovery. Cool. So Trevor, you, you just mentioned uh, recovery, and I know that's a really you know, important word after somebody has these kind of impairments or these deficits following a stroke. Um, and so could you talk a little bit about what it's like to recover from a stroke and, and how these language deficits you know, hopefully resolve? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so obviously losing your ability to speak to someone or understand what people are saying to you is obviously really like terrifying, right? Um, and it's really life changing. So, a lot of these patients they have like decreased mood and um, they actually have worse outcomes than some of the other uh, patients who have preserved speech after stroke. And so, what we know is that about thirty percent of um, stroke survivors will have aphasia, and that aphasia will continue um, past the the acute window, so into post six months, um, pretty much for years down the road. Right. And most of your recovery happens in that first six months while you're receiving therapy in the acute care wards. And uh, um, once you become an outpatient, then those resources are much, um, much less for you. And so we're obviously trying to find ways that we can uh, improve recovery right off the bat and also in the chronic window. So how can we continue to have people improve even after they leave the hospital? Um, so traditional speech therapy where you work with a speech therapist and you work on word finding if issues or if you have receptive um, issues, you work on listening and understanding. Um, we found that, well, the world in general has found that that's really helpful. Mm -hmm. um, but the standard speech therapy is, is really low dose, like maybe only three or four hours per week. And so you really get minimal gains from that. Mm -hmm. um, so obviously some systematic reviews have shown since that higher dose speech therapy is even better than low dose speech therapy. So really trying to get as much practice as you can in, in as short a window as you can is most important for getting really good outcomes after speech. Um, right. Impairments, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, uh, th there's obviously a lot of theories of why those first kind of six months or three months or whatever it might be are, are 
quite important for recovery. Um, what actually what actually happens in the brain uh, during that time as you're doing this practice? You know, what do we see uh, in the brains of, of patients that have suffered from these types of strokes? Right. So yeah, I guess I'll kind of start in why we think aphasia happens uh, neurologically. So you have the lesion in the left hemisphere of your brain where your where your Broca's area is, for example, um, and we think in the acute period when you have that damage and that tissue is dead, um, you get some functional reorganization to the right hemisphere. There's some regions in the right hemisphere of the brain that are really similar to Broca's area in the left hemisphere, right. and so your brain recruits those regions because they're semi-fluent and they can help. Uh, with really short-term gains, you can get really basic speech um, from that. Um, but we're, what some data is showing is that in order to have really good outcomes after aphasia, you have to have functional reorganization around the lesion. Okay. Um, and you want less of the right hemisphere recruitment because you think that's somewhat de detrimental. And now there's some cases where right hemisphere might be the only way to recover, like such as really big strokes. We see right. that every once in a while, where there isn't really much cortex left around uh, the lesion that you can reorganize to. So maybe the right hemisphere is the most um, beneficial in those cases. But for the common strokes that we see, the smaller, more focal strokes, we really want to encourage um, recovery around the lesion in the left hemisphere of the brain, which is the most fluent cortex that we have. Right. And 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 so, you know, if you have, it, it's kind of like, you know, if you have the real estate uh, in your brain in the left hemisphere, you know, use that. that yeah. That's your best option. But Obviously, sometimes you have a stroke that can, you know, damage a greater part of the whole hemisphere, and there's just no more tissue alive, essentially, to, to actually reorganize yeah, exactly. and to, you know, make those connections again. So I guess in that case, you, you really only have that option, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, you know, obviously, this is what we think happens in the brain um, in terms of the reorganization, and this is... Um, you know, is this something that, you know, clinicians are able to use, this type of information? Are we able to use this to, you know, maybe predict who actually will make a recovery based on the ways that the brain organizes itself after it's had a stroke? Or or is that still something that's a little further down the road? Yeah, I think it's something definitely that's a little further down the road. Like, it's something that we're, it's kind of a theory right now that the right hemisphere of the brain, we need to push back to the left hemisphere of the brain. Um, but... I think that research is kind of moving in that direction. We want to try to find a predictor that can tell us this person is going to have good outcomes versus poor outcomes based on all these factors that we can consider. Um, but my research, actually, we try to push the right hemisphere activity back to the left hemisphere using brain stimulation. Mm. Um, and that's just an experimental technique that we're trying to use. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's obviously in the early stages. Uh, I feel like a lot of the research that we do is in the early stage. But earlier, you mentioned that you kind of you're you're doing some research right now during your PhD, but you're also in the MD program. So, you know, having that kind of you know opportunity to see things both from the side of patient care, but also being on the side of research, where where you're trying to develop these new techniques, kind of like the brain stimulation you just mentioned. You know, how has that kind of shaped your perspective on on your research itself? Knowing that you know these might be techniques that one day. You know, you as a clinician are going to walk in and you might treat patients using these very techniques. How, do, how does that kind of shape your perspective on research? Yeah, I mean, it definitely plays a huge role. Like you, you're in the clinic and you, you see these patients who have really hard times getting their point across and you feel for them. You, you really want them to be able to speak. And yeah. it, like as, a, as like if they're a parent, it's really hard to raise your children, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and just having like holding a job, um, right. being able to communicate in a normal way. So 
yeah, it definitely pushes you to to want to improve the the standard of care. And so, yeah, we we're running a small trial of um, some experimental therapies where we're using really high dose therapy, but we're also using brain stimulation uh, to try to prime the brain before therapy to try to get the most out of the therapy because. Right. As you imagine with speech, it's, you can only get a certain number of repetitions in a certain amount of time. Um, so we really try to maximize uh, the, the plastic potential of the brain while they go into those mm -hmm. speech sessions. So, um, yeah, definitely some groundbreaking work and really hope that it helps patients in the future. Yeah, hopefully. Well, that's everything that I had for today. But I want to thank you personally for coming in and joining us on the podcast. That was really interesting. And uh, I wish you the best of luck with the rest of your research here and uh, the rest of your degrees. Awesome. Thanks, Rob.